0: hello i'm john atak and um i'm welcoming
1: my dear friend chris shelton and uh chris is actually this is he's very kind and it shows that we are the best of friends because he's recuperating after 7 years of banging his head against the screen um and and has kindly you know agreed to come on on the john Atack show you know um, because uh, we were talking the other week and we do we do actually have conversations that we don't record, which might be a mistake. You never yeah, know.
2: We should do something different there. <laughs> we have such interesting conversations.
1: Uh, and when we were talking the other week, um brought up the topic of narcissism and um, I, I probably got quite heated about it um, because it's something that's fascinated me for years, this idea of the narcissistic personality disorder and the way that people talk about it and the things that are said, and so I wanted to rant about that. And and Chris has has kindly accepted the invitation to be ranted at. Bring it. And, um, make some comment. Now I'm going to use as my source book, um, "Rethinking Narcissism: The Secret to Recognizing and Coping with Narcissists." Which is by Dr. Craig Malkin, who is an associate of the um, Harvard Medical School. So um, that's pretty good.
2: Doesn't get any more top tier than that.
1: Doesn't get any more top tier than that. And um, I was quite surprised by this book. i've I've been reading about this idea of narcissism for for years. and um, I'm well aware of its history, which we're going to talk about a little. And I just think, It is such a wrong word for the condition that we are describing. Mm. I doubt that I'm going to be able to change the classification that the American Psychiatric Association has made. But the story of Narcissus is is a a Greek myth, and it's told of a young man who fell in love with his own reflection. And apparently turned into a daffodil at some point, um, which we classify as the Narcissus. associated with history is the story of Echo, which will become relevant in a few minutes. Echo has fallen in love with Narcissus, as others have. One young man has actually killed himself because Narcissus would not return his affections. Echo has been punished by the gods so that all she can do is repeat what other people have said. So she hangs around Narcissus and Narcissus is going, God, I'm beautiful. And all Echo can do is go, God, I'm beautiful. And It's very sad. So that's Narcissus, somebody who is self-obsessed, somebody who is only looking at themselves. Now, the first person to bring this into psychology was Havelock Ellis, uh, an English psychologist in the 19th century. And I think his definition was accurate and useful. His definition was somebody who masturbates all the time and doesn't want to have sex with other people. Huh. Now that fits in with my idea of the guy looking at himself all the time.
2: <laughs> I mean, that is a that is a fascinating take on it, only because that still survives in its current incarnation or understanding of narcissism. In that, I, I immediately thought of a, a movie called American Psycho. Yeah, which was based on that book by what Brett Ellis, right? And. Christian Bale famously in that movie, I think there are two scenes where he's having uh, sex with uh, prostitutes, but he's staring at himself in the mirror while he's doing it. And that was, there's no accident there. That was clearly planned shots. And so there that is uh, reflected all the way in modern cinema.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, Sigmund Freud and anybody who knows me knows that I detest Sigmund Freud. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um,
1: and for a panoply of reasons for a panoply of reasons and we'll do, maybe do something about that one day people keep up yeah. too but read Frederick Cruz's um, Fraud his book about Freud um, or um, "Feet of Clay by Anthony Storr that was the first thing I read in the 80s about Freud That you know, it, I sort of started reading Freud because Hubbard Ron Hubbard had claimed that he'd taken ideas from Freud before he claimed that all of the ideas were his own which is you can take your pick with Hubbard as to which you believe one of them may be true uh, one of them isn't um, but he referred to Freud and this teaching he had from Commander Thompson which through research that Russell Miller and I did we found that he'd spent four days with Commander Thompson that was the whole but if you can give a doctorate course in six weeks you can probably learn everything about Freud in four days. Um,
2: you what, 11 or 12 years old?
1: He was 12 years old, uh, is on a trip through the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, whatever.
2: Anyway, and knowing what a studious person L. Ron Hubbard was and how well, attentive he was to learning, especially at that age.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, the diaries that Scientology accidentally released right. uh, through the Armstrong case, where you've got two handwritten diaries and then a retype of one of them where everything's improved, because that's what diaries are for. Yeah, he's a kid, he's 16, he's a kid who's, you know, um, not not really paying that much attention to anything, you know, nor was I at the age of 16, other than girls and um, rock music. I like them, and uh, that was good. Um, right. Anyway, Freud gets hold of this idea of narcissism, and he changes it to somebody who loves themselves to the exclusion of all others. Mm-hmm. then eric Fromm comes along and he spent a lifetime i mean he um he's unusual among freudian analysts and he was not a, a doctor of medicine um his doctorate was in social psychology mm-hmm. he studied at the berlin institute in i think 1929 somewhere around there and he immediately started disagreeing with freud which didn't get him you know he was kicked out of the frankfurt school for being disagreeable about the great Messiah Freud, you know, and by the end of his life,
2: I wish science did not, social and otherwise, uh, did not trend that way. But groups of people and, and thinking, uh, science is no exception, unfortunately, to faddish thinking.
1: Yeah, and and we find it even in the hard sciences where you know geologists right. disagree with each other and and they shun each other or they um become spiteful and malignant. In, in their approach. It, it's bizarre. I mean, and I, and I like the idea, I mean, I do very strictly separate soft and hard science, that the sciences of, of the human, anthropology, ethnology, ethology, sociology, uh, psych- clinical psychology, and I think social psychology verges on being provable in certain places, but even there, we have to be very careful about the experiments. When you come to physics and chemistry, you've got something a bit more rigorous. but even there, I like the idea that there are people who disagree that that yeah. there are people you know, in mathematics, you've got three distinct schools in mathematics. Um, do numbers really exist? That's one of the questions, and some of them believe they do, and others believe they don't that they're approximations you know and you get these foundational disputes, and that's great because it stimulates different thinking you're not all stuck with you know the luminiferous ether holding the universe together right. um but with yeah with the freudians there have been some really severe battles which are very cultish they're very kind of you know we don't talk to him anymore mm-hmm. um, be- because he doesn't do this jeffrey masson found this out when uh, he worked in the Freud archive and he dug out the papers on seduction theory, which is the idea that children are trying to sexually seduce adults. Now, Freud believed this, and there's a little note in the official biography by Ernest Jones, which is a letter from Freud saying, I had to drop it because it it would have made my work unpopular. But he still believed, as many child molesters do, children are trying to seduce them um they have to
2: project themselves into the kid
1: yeah what's In called order. coy behavior don't. by by psychologists and i've seen it and i've talked with a paedophile about it to try and understand it better and they've really got it wrong that's my perception of mm-hmm. being around lots of children um and Freud got it wrong. He didn't speak to his dad for two years because he was sure his dad must have abused him because all parents abuse their children. This was one weird guy. He takes narcissism and he gives a definition of it. Somebody who's self-obsessed, loves only themselves, has no love for others from comes along. And as he's over the decades deconstructing Freud and pushing more and more of it away, he, he stayed with the dream idea to the very end. And I think that's absolute nonsense that, you know, dreams are teaching us something. They're, they're pretty much random. Occasionally there'll be some insight in them, but they're pretty much random. Okay. That, that's my conclusion. So Fromm said, ah, Freud's wrong about this. Narcissists are people who do not feel love. They don't know how to feel love. They don't love themselves. And in a book called The Heart of Man in 1965, he... Gives us pretty much the definition that is used for the narcissistic personality disorder, what he calls the malignant narcissist.
2: And that was a that was a pretty radical departure definition and, and and philosophically from what had come before. To to say you only love yourself is love directed inward, but it's love. Yeah, Thomas saying, oh yeah, no, it's just not there at all. This mm-hmm. is a person who's incapable of that. Yes, that, that is, that's almost two different worlds of description of, of what we're talking about.
1: Absolutely. And, and um, I'm glad that, that, that you see that because uh, many people when I talk with them don't seem to get that this has actually inverted the definition.
0: Yeah. And much.
1: we're no longer talking about narcissism. We are talking about, um, well, when I left Scientology, <clears throat> There's a young lad in 1983. One of my closest friends was.
0: Oh, a... Decades ago. That's yes, <laughs> all those
1: years ago. Um, one of my close friends was a wonderful man called Mitch Beedy. And um, he started riffing on Hubbard's Way to Happiness, which, which is a ridiculous little text, which we won't get into here. Uh, the Way to Happiness does not uh, is not based upon murdering your family and friends. You can murder <laughs> anybody else, so that'd be fine. <laughs> um so he wrote his own text and i don't think he ever finished it but but he determined and i think this was really insightful that the state of clear in scientology is actually smugness he got it down to one word that you get to a point where you are smug and so he decided that you have the state of smug and the way to smugness
2: well, yeah. this thing- that is legit funny. I mean, it's absolutely true. I, it is reductionist as hell. There's a lot more going on, but it is hilariously accurate too. so i'll I'll give him that. yeah, yeah I think
1: so. And I okay. think in in looking at in in looking at what we're calling narcissism, that smugness may be the important criterion. Now, Craig Malkin, he tells us, um, Some narcissism is good, even vital for us to lead happy, fulfilled and productive lives. And I'm going, narcissism can be good. Mm -hmm. Mm, There's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. He goes on. um, He starts talking about in the following pages, you'll discover many other truths. That challenge accepted wisdom. And I love it when people are smug enough to to tell me that they're going to give me a basket full of truths.
0: I think that's
1: deplorable. And he says that, that he himself was the child of a child of a mother who was narcissistic. And he says, um, like many children narcissists, while growing up and through my teen years, I didn't allow myself to feel special at all. I was terrified of even trying. I shrank from compliments or dismissed them. No matter what I accomplished, it wasn't good enough. Now, this gives him his essential thesis, which is there's a spectrum. At one end, you have unhealthy narcissism. At the other end, you have echoism, which is why I thought I'd mention echo. He is saying he's an echoist, doesn't like compliments, doesn't like people to celebrate his birthday, doesn't want to be looked at, doesn't want to be admired in any way. And he's saying that this is a consequence of having had an unhealthy narcissist as a mother. Then in the middle of his scale, and it is printed in this book, he has healthy narcissism. So you go from zero to ten or what have you, and at five, you've got healthy narcissism. Then he explains what he means. Narcissism is feeling special. That's what how he defines it. That's a complete definition. So you can feel too special, feel special enough, or not feel special. And so the
2: what, what are we, the three bears here?
1: I mean, this is a little Goldie bit. Goldilocks definitely comes into this. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one. It's again, we're just reducing these ideas down to the, the most simplest of veneers. Um, but also, we're t- talking about entirely different concepts here. We've gone from self love, can't love anybody else but self, to no love whatsoever, to feeling special mm-hmm. on a spectrum. Well, sure, I can put any emotion or feeling on a spectrum. But I would never call feeling special the spectrum of narcissism. No. It's only a part of what we kind of understand if we're kind of using Fromm's idea, sort of. But there's so many behavioral aspects to this that are not, you know, these are explanations that that sort of don't really encompass all the behaviors we assign to this thing called narcissism.
1: No. So yeah
2: I can see why we're fl- sort of flailing around in the dark here a little bit with this. It's a, it, you're bringing up very good points here.
1: And he's he goes on to suggest and, and strongly that that he can cure the narcissistic personality disorder. Um,
2: you evaluate a person hard enough long enough so that they don't feel special anymore and I guess you've cured them, right? they have no ego anymore you also don't have a human being with any more hopes or dreams but hey at least they're not a narcissist right? <laughs> come on man what is this i sorry i just cut you off there i was just a little outraged sorry I won't do no that. no
1: that's good that's what i want i
2: yeah. want
0: feeling i want feeling Chris.
2: <laughs> yeah we are a little all over the place with this aren't we this yeah. is idea of what this is I mean I have tended to go with you know my my exposure to this and understanding of the concept has been pretty from specific you know specific right that's how I've been thinking about it for a very long time is it's a somebody who and I didn't use love I said empathy or compassion for others Although I've tended to really question myself on that concept after, after watching, 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 studying, studying coercive control and, and predatory behavior, because you because it's just not true that somebody, and it's you know, I, I'll, I'll definitely talk about this on your channel. I have to kind of maybe not talk about it on mine.. <laughs> uh, Anymore, right is Trump right, but he's just the most visible example. I mean, I, we could say a Boris Johnson as well, but I'm not as familiar with Boris uh, in his personal life. But certainly, Trump is capable of feeling affection in a certain direction. Now that affection is tempered, clearly tempered by his mafia don-like obsession with loyalty and. You know, that actually is the deciding factor on whether he throws any affection your way is whether you are demonstrating loyalty or, or favoritism toward him, he'll give it right back. So, you know, is that echoism? I wouldn't call it that. I'd say that it's a, an obsession with loyalty and a, and probably a fear-based thing if I was going to have to assign a single emotion to it, but I think it's a bit more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, and, and there is... a. Um, if we look at the simple-minded narcissist, let's say, who thinks about everything as simple-minded people do in terms of polarities, Mm -hmm. um, that if you are a member of the family of such a person, a smug, let's call them that for the moment, then you are an extension of them.
2: Yep, that's right.
1: So therefore... You know when when he said that he'd do Ivanka if he if he was not her dad, you know, which was a very unseemly thing to say. Um, um, really quite bizarre. Um, you know, he uh, he his family become an extension of him, but but one, as you say, having seen now so many interviews with people who were close to him during his presidency, who are not very happy anymore, and
0: absolutely.
1: have opened up about. The way that he would, his emotions would just flip one minute. You were accepted. You were part of the family and the next minute you're out and you're gone. And he will then attack you, as he did with so many of his former officials afterwards, uh, people he'd appointed who he then you know, no longer liked. I mean, I've used him as a case study um, today. I had a conversation with a, uh, an independent Scientologist and I've been I've been looking for a long time to find somebody really smart who's into this stuff who'll talk to me, because talking to Andy Nolch about it, you know, proved to be rather deflating all in all.
2: Yeah, a little counterproductive trying to carry on that conversation.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I wanted to find somebody smart who would challenge me and my disagreement about just about every aspect of Scientology and what it is, and he came to a point where he suggested that I had confirmation bias with regard to Donald Trump, and I said to him, "Well, here's the thing there's I, I divide this up that there's prejudice. that's where I, you don't know about something, but it doesn't feel right. That's prejudice, mm-hmm. prejudice before judgment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that it's a form of bias, but I think of bias as the other form of bias, which is I know a lot about it and I have come to a decision, you know what the decisions I've made about Scientology are, in fact, based upon, you know, 40, 48 years of, oh dear, it's horrible, isn't it? 48 years of study and, you know, putting together the first history of the subject, putting together the first realistic cosmology of the subject, there's not one in Scientology itself, talking with hundreds and hundreds of former members. I could not be called prejudiced. My conclusions may be wrong, but it's a bias that's been reached through reason. And so I explained that before Trump was elected, I'd watched about 20 hours of documentary about him. And he was sort of, yeah, but you're watching things that are negative and said, no, many of the people were friends of Trump right. who were interviewed in these documentaries. So I've seen all points of view. I just right. think that setting up two other casinos to compete with your existing casino is not good business sense. You know that could just be me, but they all went bankrupt. So sometimes we, we do we come to an opinion after study and after thinking about it, it doesn't mean we're gonna be right necessarily, but there's more chance of it. And especially if we didn't.
2: And you always temper that bias with a willingness to continue to look and the degree that you're open-minded about a thing. In other words, willing to accept new information, willing to change your mind based on that new information that's how you counter your own or other people's biases, right? And, and, and an educated opinion on a thing. You know, it's, it's a tough thing for me to say that that is a bias, although I get it. I mean, clearly it's going to curve or affect your, your views and your perce- even your perceptions of things. But that open-mindedness and that discipline of that is, is really where that, that good critical thinking element comes in. <laughs> i got to comment <laughs> on that.
1: It's true, yeah, absolutely. It is true. Good critical thinking, and of course, I have no skin in the game because I don't live in America. Right, and, um, <laughs> I, I despise the Democrats and the Republicans equally. I have come to do the same. I, I'm
2: afraid. I used to you know, because you're because you're sort of when you're in a binary system like American politics, where it's two party system all my life. Yeah. Um, any attempt at the third party has always been quashed very, very hard um, in, a, in, in, a, in a similar way to how unions get quashed. I mean, they just come in there with any means necessary to destroy it utterly. Yeah. So they're stuck with this two-party system. And, and as a result of that, most Americans are very, very stuck ideologically in having to choose one or the other. And, and they don't understand that you actually do have the option to say, yeah, actually, they're both kind of fucked. Mm. And uh, and I'm actually going to be independent, although that has now grown as a result of all the divisions over the last, I'd say, 10 years, having, you know, the independents have really, really taken off here because of that problem.
1: Yeah. I I, I mean, um, there need to be three parties in any system, at
0: least.
2: Um, least.
1: I I mean, if you look at the places that have proportional representation that you've got Italy at one end, which has had pretty much a, a new parliament for every year since 1946. Um, that you know, and uh, Berlusconi was not really you know, the period where they didn't, was really awful. Total mm-hmm. crook, that man. Um, great friend of Putin, as of course is Trump. Um, but at the other end, you've got Germany, which seem, which again, with an open system and all sorts of political parties, does seem to be a a better place to live a Mm -hmm. safer place to live i would
2: definitely endorse that yeah
1: um so who knows right let's um let me dip back into my lovely craig malkin book and see see what else i've got
2: yeah
1: i might just put a few tags in um
2: do you have by the way on that one as i brought up empathy and compassion and love and I don't look at those things as total synonyms. I believe that they are separate concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Distinctly so. Yeah, I do. And I, I tend to think about these personalities. Um, you know, personality disorders are—they're difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're really, we're really just trying to. I think without, and I and by we, I mean you know psychology. I, I, I don't feel like a spokesperson for psychology. I feel like somebody who has some education in psychology and can comment on it from that position. That that we're trying, in in what I would consider to still be baby steps of this of this subject, um, to categorize or or umbrella you know, behaviors. Mm. And, and I don't know that that's the best system to go about categorizing people. No. But, we, but we do have people, groups of people, we can, we can group them
0: mm.
2: into commonalities of behavior that we can observe and go, you know, we don't like this. This is antisocial. This is harmful to people. Mm. Uh, you know, when people act this way, bad things happen. Mm. Broken relationships, abusive homes, Destroyed businesses, you know, it's a it's a pattern with this kind of this kind of personality, and, oh. and and I think we struggle an awful lot with that, you know, throwing these words around for this. But what we're really just trying to do is categorize behavior, oh. um, more so than categorizing. You know, we we then make the unwarranted leap. To try to figure out why that behavior exists. Well, what's driving that behavior? And we tend to look inwards to neuroscience and sociology, you know, sociological factors, family factors, genetics. What is it? Right. And it's and 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 I think the failure here is not recognizing that it is a multidisciplinary problem because it's a multidisciplinary situation.
0: Mm.
2: It is not nature, it is not nurture, it's all of it. And, and, it's, and it's a difficult thing to, to go there because niche fields want to own the space, right? Psychology wants to own it, but sociology has something to do with it, but neuroscience has something to do with it. Well, actually, it's kind of partially explainable in all of those spheres, but together you get an actually more well-rounded and more accurate view of what it is you're trying to even describe if you approach it from all those angles rather than trying to stick in one bucket. And, and that's the mistake I see people make in in the field and outside of the field more often than I think any, anything else. Um, and that's why I think we keep stepping on each other's feet and tripping over each other with this rather than coming up with a, a way of categorizing this behavior more accurately. If, if I'm, you know, that's how I look at the general problem of this and why it is such a problem.
1: I agree with you. Uh, I think it's become different, difficult because of overspecialization, yep, because of competition between fields. When I you know left Scientology, I started reading sociology, social psychology, and I realized that quite often they were describing the same thing, but they had a whole different vocabulary for it. They don't mm-hmm. talk to each other and Then, you know, you have schools like the Situationists, um, Philip Phil Zimbardo, who I respect as a genius, incredible man. But he is very much a Situationist. And in the Lucifer effect, he gets to the end of the book and he says, OK, I have proved that basically evil is conditioned. Evil, you know, we've seen so many cases here. I think I've shown that. So there isn't the evidence, but I believe it will be true for goodness as well. And I absolutely balked at that point and said, well, you've just told us one of the stories you've told us is about Chip Frederick, the sergeant who was sent to prison for eight years for showing the photographs of the Abu Ghraib torture or for taking the photographs, being involved with that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Zim had been um, an expert witness on his behalf. So, you know, he was in, had intimate knowledge of the case. And of course, in describing that case, you have to talk about Joe Darby. Joe Darby was the guy who was he asked his friends in Iraq. I have anybody got photos of Iraq for me to take home. And he was given the disk with, with these on. And he said his first response when he realized what it was on was to throw it in the bin because he knew that his life would be at risk if he shared it with anyone. And he decided he couldn't do that. So he shared it. Then Don Rumsfeld outed him. He named him publicly. So he's, I mean, after that, he had a bodyguard of four, four people to stop his fellow Marines from killing him because he'd blown the whistle. Yep. Um, so, but Joe Darby was There's not...
2: The really loyalty factor showing up again.
1: Yeah, on Semper Fi. But, yeah. but Joe Darby didn't make his decision in a group situation. He knew what the risks were. He knew he was risking his life yep. to do good to do the right thing so i've come to the conclusion that sure people can do the right thing because they've been bullied into it because they've been threatened that they won't go to heaven or what have you Mm -hmm. but i've come to the conclusion that there are people who think their way and decide to be good and that where evil is largely we talked about apaths we were talking about jane mcgregor's idea of about 60% of the population just go with the flow, whoever's directing them. And that will tend to be the sociopath they will follow because the sociopath is more Machiavellian and conniving right. than, than the empath. But so we, we get to this point where um, if, if looking at DSM 5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, um, fifth edition, Um, which was 2012, and there was a tremendous argument at the time this was being put together because people were saying, look, you are linking together behaviours, symptoms, uh, affects, when we now know that some of these conditions are neurological. And shouldn't we wait until we understand the neuroscience? Well, that too has become problematic uh, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but a, a meta-analysis of, uh,
0: yeah.
1: with depression has yep. said serotonin is not necessarily involved in any way. And so the idea of selective serotonin reuptake inhibition that is behind Prozac and sertraline and all of these uh, venlafax and all of these drugs may not be true at all. The reason they're working And I've suspected this for a long time, because in 1991, because Scientology was so against Prozac, I started reading about it. In fact, I actually uh, spoke with Eli Lilly at one point about the lawsuit that Scientology had against them. And I, for free, advised them to get the hell out of Dodge, because Scientology would keep going forever. I should have charged them $10,000 for that advice, because it certainly saved them more than that. But there was this paper that came out in about 91, I think, where neurogenesis had been found. New neurons were being made in the hippocampus. And there is also research that shows that clinically depressed people at post-mortem have a shrunken hippocampus. And the hippocampus is, is it's relevant for memory um, recall. So it seemed to me that you could fit these things together, that in fact, Nobody knows how, but the SSRIs are not necessarily functioning on serotonin at all. What they're doing is forcing the generation of of new cells, which for people who are clinically depressed, which is not the majority of people are taking Prozac, they have reactive depression, they're unhappy. And doctors have been talked into giving them this drug, which I'm not sure is, well, the... Royal College of Psychiatrists in the 1980s here said 80% of prescriptions, sorry, in the 1990s, 80% of prescriptions for SSRIs were wrong. That General practitioners were just handing this stuff out and they were giving it to people who were unhappy, not to people who had clinical depression, a quite different thing.
2: Right, which, of course, rubs right up against my problem with that, which is, as you just mentioned, general practitioners. You might as well go to your veterinarian to yeah. for as much specialization as they're going to understand about mental health and mental processes. Yeah, that was a real, real, real disservice foisted off on the American public that general practitioners were given the right to prescribe um, SSRIs or, you know, or mental health drugs that, that itself, I think was a layer that, that kind of gets glossed over often in this, in this discussion. And it's not mm-hmm. an unimportant fact, you know, I, I'm serious when I say you might as well go to your vet because that's the level of skill and expertise that your general practitioner has. In other words, none whatsoever when it comes to, um, trying to deal with mental issues. And understanding mental issues at a level of expertise to be able to test for, diagnose, and treat these problems. And, and it's not all social. There are issues, right? And we do know from the fact that it's not an insignificant percentage of people who do have favorable responses to SSRIs, that there's something going on there. Perhaps your explanation is the, is the one. Perhaps there's other things. I, I'm not really sure what the neurobiology of this is, but I do know for a fact, because I live with it and I've experienced it myself, that you know when you are on the right meds for the condition that you have, it really does deal with the problem. Now, does it deal with the problem the way they think it does that's been a question mark since day 1 of these drugs mm. and that leads right back to our admitted ignorance of what the hell's going on up here right there is still we are still there are still neurotransmitters we don't have names for i mean we are so, I, I wish people could understand the 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 baby steps here the the fact that these fields are are scientifically speaking, you know, uh, just barely over what, 100, 120, 130 years old. And that's nothing when it comes to development of ideas of this complexity, dealing with this thing, the most complicated machine we know of in the universe. So it's, you know, so I, I think we also have an expectation. And I don't mean to say all this as some kind of like, Defense, you know, it's, I don't think it needs defense. I think it needs this pointed out Mm. that we are in infant stages here of just trying to understand what's going on. And it's kind of amazing that we've actually been able to produce some of the results we've been able to produce, given our ignorance, our gross ignorance Mm. of neurobiology, the neuroscience of it, and the social psychology melded with that. As we just went over, they, these fields don't even barely talk to each other, mm. and um, and so of course we're you know we we see so many mistakes made and are going to see many more as we try to figure this out. You know, um, I only pipe up like this because I'm so hyper aware of the Scientology-like criticism that occurs of psychiatry and psychology because of these pitfalls. And these these mistakes that get made, you know, what you weren't perfect the entire time. Like, you know, if if you go into any science, you are. I had to talk with physicists uh, just two days ago. You know, and they just would not shut up about, you know, the same level of ignorance and stupidity and trying to figure things out and errors in the data and errors in the interpretation of the data. And in physics, you know, these hard sciences, these ones where it's all math. No, it's not because there's people involved, right? Mm -hmm. And so because there's people involved, you're going to have all these layers of nonsense going on. So, I I, again, I come across as apologia, but I really am just trying to point out the facts of the matter and the state of the field so that it's understood what we're criticizing, and my take on it is we're criticizing the things they got wrong, but let's be super, super clear, at least from my point of view, that that doesn't mean the entire field is a bunch of bumbling moron idiots or evil people who are trying to do the world in. And that's, unfortunately, a position in the world right now with psychiatry and psychology, and I, I always have to kind of push back against that a little bit. I know I'm bringing in something that you weren't really talking about, but... Oh, it, it, uh, it's
1: it, absolutely it, it, relevant. Yeah, so... And, uh, so. And i agree with all of the foregoing you know cool. i've reached the same conclusion that if we like it's the smugness of some of the practitioners that is a problem that, that's right that that's right this pretense and and i'm with hubbard that psychiatry in its development um and particularly the 50s well 40s 50s 60s into the 70s uh, One flew over the cuckoo's nest is an accurate depiction of a psychiatric institute, and the proof of that is that the guy who plays the head of the institute in the film is the head of the institute. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. It's his only acting role, and he felt passionately enough about it that he used his hospital to make that film. And you know, Ken Kesey had worked in a psychiatric hospital to get those ideas. Yeah. Um Electroconvulsive therapy
0: book,
2: by the way, as well as a movie. I've I've read it and seen it. Absolutely, it's inarguable, and there is no excuse. And I can't look back at any of that and justify it, rationalize it. I understand why it happened, but but it doesn't make it right any more than I understand why concentration camps happened. But doesn't make it right. You know, there's no justification there. It's just it is it happened, and we have to understand it. We have to understand why it happened, so that never again
0: yeah
2: right you exactly. don't allow it again and and this goes back to the 20s with the with the electroshocking the pigs where we got electroshock therapy from that came out of that was a brainchild of of a guy out of italy mean, there's, there's,
1: his name was looney
2: that's it that's right so there's there's that there's a and then of course we go back to freud and his you know nut, nuttiness with you know with all the things right and, <laughs> and we can go on and and, and so much projection you know, so much because sometimes you literally did have the inmates running the asylum. I mean, it was just that bad. And it, and I, and I can look back on it and I can, all I can say was, well, fuck, at least we had an asylum, but you know, like, damn. so much, so much learning has had to take place and society itself had to actually become a bit more of a civil place itself. Hmm. For this field to actually become more humane, because when you go, if you go back to, you know, just cultural values all the way back, you know, at the turn of the century, 1900, this was a time period when toilet paper was relatively new and babies were raised on alcohol.
0: Mm, Best thing for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, all kinds of just things that we would, we would be shocked, appalled rudely, you know, morally indignant about that we just don't even think about because we hyper-focus on very specific things and don't, again, and this is a mental health issue problem, right? We don't look at the bigger picture, the bigger influencers. So why do people act the way they do? Well, because their culture demands it many, many times, you know? So it's, so there's a lot of, again, a lot of factors at play here, which I just like to bring up to point out to people, not to make any of this barbarism or nonsense in psychiatry's history okay, you
0: know? Yeah,
1: and, and, you know, the history goes back, you know, the current Imperial War Museum in London is actually in the, the Bethlehem Hospital, Bedlam. Right. And there, people would pay to go and watch the lunatics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, it was a kind of sport, like bear baiting or the other stupid unbelievable things that people used to do. Yep. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually going to reveal something you may not know, and that, that our viewers may not know. And this is something that I worked out. Um, electroconvulsive therapy was, was brought about because this Italian doctor and there was an American doctor who I think was called Rabbit. <laughs> a very likely story. They both of them, for a bit of fun, used to go to the abattoir, to the slaughterhouse. I don't know why, I don't know what kind of personality it is that goes along to Slaughterhouse to watch the animals being killed, but that was how they got their jollies. and
2: they came up with the idea.
1: Yeah, because they saw animals convulsing when they'd been given a stunning shock. Now, that went back to um, insulin shock, because it had been found that it was believed epileptics are calmer after their fits, and so... They started, they used insulin shock. But before that, you had cold water therapy, where you'd be put in a kind of rubber blanket and dropped into freezing water, which would induce convulsion, the idea that you calm down. Now, most of the textbooks, the history books stop at that point. It came from somebody had seen that convulsion makes you feel easier afterwards. The little missing bit of the puzzle in the 19th century And Freud had one of these. Freud used one of these on his patients. They had this condition that they called hysteria. Mm -hmm. From hysteros, meaning the womb, the woman's condition. When women got hysterical, they would go to a doctor, an alienist perhaps, psychiatrist as they came to be known, and he would apply a machine to their clitoris Mm -hmm. to get them to convulse. Yeah. So there is the origin of, of a type of psychotherapy that, that has crept into our own time. Now, thankfully, ECT is, is not much used. It, it, it is still used in the treatment of severe clinical depression. But now there are, there's, there's both ketamine um,
0: right.
1: coma, yeah. which is used in Germany, which seems to be successful. And, and now there are brain implants, which seem to be able to stop this particular brain activity that leads to severe depression right um so cool i just said something
0: i'm just
2: gonna say straight up it has never made sense and within my knowledge of neuroscience and neurobiology which is again very very small compared to you know what it what it could or should be Mm -hmm. but um it has not and i don't see it ever making sense that randomly sending electrical impulses into a person's brain is somehow going to Shock them into a more um, anything more than a more vegetative state. I just I just can't see it, and I'm told that uh at this with the state of science as it is now, it is it is pretty much a hail mary sort of situation. If they are suggesting it, they have given up on anything else working. Yeah, and that kind of the, it's it really is sort of a last resort. And at that point, you're you know. It, 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 horseback riding might be as, as as useful to you as going and getting I mean I don't know I know some people have actually stated that they benefited from it but I look at it as a Hail Mary that's, that's yeah
1: I, I, there may be cases you know it's like somebody tells me that they had tremendous gains from Scientology and it changed their life and they didn't commit suicide and this that and the other that's absolutely okay by me mm-hmm.
0: it,
1: in their case that worked but um talking to this guy today and he was talking about Scientology curing PTSD and I had to say to him I've seen it induce PTSD in many cases you know I've not seen it cure it yet
0: no nope. um Next but that,
1: that's my experience and somebody else's experience is theirs and it's valid but it, I, I think you make a very important point that um as you know I'm a big fan of Robert A. Burton um, I even wrote to him to tell him I was a big fan, and he said thank you, which is nice. Um, and he wrote this. He was the head of neurology at Mount Sion, um, which is the University of California in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And this is one of his books, The Skeptic's Guide to the Mind. So this I, is neuro.
2: That book, loved that book.
1: Yeah, and he's saying, I think we're getting a bit smug. Exactly uh so one of the things he points out and i thought this was just fascinating he's saying we don't know what glial cells do mm-hmm. the word glial comes from glue the presumption has always been that they glue the the brain together and half of the cells in the brain are glial cells the other half are neurons it could be that the glial cells are doing a bit more than we think yep
0: That's
1: right. so we, we are, you know, there are 200 brain regions. It said there's not one neurologist in the world who can name them all. That's how severe the problem is. So...
2: It's akin to the and, – and people might understand this if we put it this way. I don't know. It's akin to the microprocessor problem or the computer problem. You know, Up, up until the 1970s, you could theoretically be the guy who understood every part of the computer. Hmm. You really did get the whole thing. You could build it from scratch. You, you understood how the microprocessor worked, how the boards worked, how the monitor and the various hmm. input devices. all. Yeah, I mean, you could actually literally look at a board and understand what it's doing, you mm-hmm. know, or figure it out. And sometime around the 70s, certainly, certainly by the 80s, mm-hmm. that became a thing of the past. Uh, Micro, you, you had to start specializing because the complexity of the devices simply became too much, right? I think this might be similar to what, what's that old uh, story about the guy who. It goes back to the 1400s or something, 14 or 1500. I was going to, the guys who thought they were going to know everything there was to know, you know, like there was a point in time when you could have all the knowledge. And then, (laughs) and there's just too much. There's just way too much, you know, and, and this is without question. I mean, nothing else even comes close to the complexity of what exists in the, in the, the, you know, the skull of every single human being, We've all got one and no one understands it really. And most people don't know what
1: to do with it. Right. <laughs> there is that problem as well. And it's it, you know, somebody calls you a fat head. It's true. Your brain is largely made of fat. <laughs> so what are we gonna say?
0: That's right.
2: Um, yeah. Anyway, i kind of I, I kind of completely derailed us there onto the psychiatry stuff, but it's just you know i i just it, when we talk about the state of these things you know and why it is that you know we have these terms and i and i i mean i'm so sick of the term narcissist now it's so it's it's entered the public lexicon unfortunately in such a way that it's now watered down to mean what basically whatever somebody wants it to mean <sighs> Uh, you know, in that sense, in the way that people actually use the word is, this now this word for somebody who's just kind of full of themselves or somebody you don't like, or somebody who's, who, who was selfish in a moment and you perceive it or interpret it as, oh, they're always that way. And they're, they're pathologically that way. And so therefore, you know, or they yelled at me once. And so therefore they tried to gaslight me. I mean, with these, these terms, get they just become useless after a while. And that's the, the the constant problem of specialist lingo ending up in, you know, in the in the common vernacular is a vulgar Latin, as we uh, I guess,
1: yeah, could dog Latin, um, yeah. So so the word depression, I was feeling depressed. No, you weren't. You were unhappy. That's right. Um, the word schizophrenic, which means something quite different to a psychiatrist You know, the the popular meaning of it is multiple personality, which mm-hmm. is not the problem at all. Um, that, you know they're people who hear voices and see things that aren't there but but they don't have multiple personalities that's, that's just right. become part of the thing or well, the word paranoia which has come to mean you know anything anxiety is now paranoia you know that and, and on and on and on that's right. um, to, to look at this very problem of of how accurate we can be you know the, if we look at dsm5 mm-hmm. again there we have the narcissistic personality disorder and there are three clusters and these are not scientology clusters here or not (laughs) clusters as i like to think of them you have cluster a cluster b and cluster c as definitions with you know it comes down to this simple thing npd narcissistic personality disorder is a cluster b and it sits in there with the histrionic disorder the borderline personality disorder and bipolar now The disorders are called disorders because you're meant to be able to resolve them with therapy and the illnesses or psychoses like bipolar are things that require chemical treatment and may or may not resolve. That's if I've understood the simple distinction. The problem is cluster A, cluster B, cluster C. What's being said is there are three symptom sets. That's it. There are three. And in cluster B, You will find the same symptoms presenting for somebody who is a borderline, somebody who has bipolar disorder or somebody who has the less often talked about histrionic personality disorder. And my thing with all of this is like, if you've got seven of these 19 things, then you can be labelled this way. I say, why don't we just look at the seven things you've got and see what we can do about that? What's the etiology of them? where did they come from? Can we do something? Rather than classifying you in some brutal way as having this type of personality, uh, Robert Hare in the the Hare Psychopathy Checklist Revised, which is an instrument used around the English-speaking world and probably elsewhere, he, I'm fascinated by his work. He's a brilliant man. But he changed his mind about the meaning of the word sociopath and psychopath in his original text in the early 90s, he says um, that psychopath is a term for those of us who believe that this is an innate problem. You're born with it. Mm. Sociopath is a term for somebody who thinks it happens because of your nurture, your conditioning. That's where the terms seem to have come from. Um, He then says, "Okay, if you score from zero to four on my checklist, You're normal, whatever that is. If if you score neurotypical, what the hell is neurotypical? If you score from 4 to 30, you're a sociopath. And if you score from 30 to 40, you're a psychopath. So when you start looking at the cultural weighting of the questions, now, Scott Malkin comes to this point as well. He quotes all sorts of research on the narcissistic personality, all sorts of statistics. And then we get to this peculiar passage, where he says, "Um, I and my colleagues, Dr. Stuart Quirk, Professor of Psychology, and doctoral candidate Shannon Martin, created a new assessment tool called the Narcissism Spectrum Scale. See how special you feel. And so he basically doesn't say, of course, all the things I've said about narcissism before come from tests that I don't rate. I don't believe in those tests. So rather than saying all of the research up until our new scale is actually invalid, he nonetheless accepts it, which, which I thought I thought was interesting. And you actually do get a little. You can probably find it online. The narcissism test. You can do it on yourself and see how special you feel. Um, I okay, see some. I
2: on that note, by the way, it is that's, that's a, exactly how it's defined. I mean, just look it up here, narcissistic personality disorder. A preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. A belief that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people or institutions. A need, and then summarize, a need for excessive admiration
1: need for excessive admiration and there we have it the the need for adulation yeah. at, without which the narcissist so-called narcissist collapses and the okay. amount of people i talked with about ron hubbard over the years you know from 1950 right on through to the end of his life uh where sarge fouth talks about it he basically would break down if he was not adulated
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, john mcmaster told me on several occasions that that you know Tubby, I think he was calling him, had, you know, been in tears because John was so loved and he wasn't. John didn't deserve to be loved. But that's another question altogether. I got to know him a bit too well. Um, (laughs) Here is the narcissism spectrum. I'm sure Spike will have inserted somewhere just to show show that I speak sooth. At one end, it's it's got zero abstinence, three habit, five moderation, eight habit. And ten addiction. I don't know what any of those things mean. Hmm. But I'm gonna move on swiftly. But you're an hmm. echoist or a you know whatever from there. Recent studies indicate that the bleak, once a narcissist, always a narcissist view, doesn't necessarily hold true. If narcissists are approached in a gentler way, many seem to soften emotionally. When they feel secure love, they become more loving and more committed. Um oh, in me. return. And I'm afraid I've written the cynical comment in there that, that recent studies, which instrument to measure narcissism have they used? Have they used the Malkin one or the one that doesn't work? Because I would suggest, as his is quite recent at this time. Uh,
2: well, some, well, I'm seeing here that there's also broken down into four different types of NPD.
1: Yep. Let's, let's hear them.
2: Grandiose. Yep. Malignant covert, and communal. And interestingly, it gives, it gives examples for three of those. I mean, grandiose narcissism is I'm better than you and I know it. Mm-hmm. Malignant narcissism is I will do whatever it takes to get what I want. Mm-hmm. Covert narcissist is I'm a great artist, but the world never noticed my talent. And then I'm not sure what the communal narcissist is. But to me, frankly each statement follows one to the next so I'm a little confused as to how these are four different types when I'm looking at this and going well I think each of these is a is an aspect of of this personality that I've seen and talked with and interacted with and been punished by (laughs) so I'm a little bit like I don't know that there's four different types here that I I question that valuation
1: yeah and and what happens if if you happen to be Rembrandt van Rijn, and have discovered a painting technique that nobody else has ever been able to equal? His letters from his teens onwards say he's the greatest painter in the world. Is he a grandiose narcissist? Right. Or it was. It was it's accurate. Actually, so, better
2: than everybody else. And he just knows it.
1: Yeah. And it, I mean, it'd be sickening to sit around and have dinner with him, you know. But. <laughs> um, having seen the, all of his self-portraits, they were all gathered um, in a show. I was, You know, I'm a painter. I was just completely blown away. What are you going to say? You know, he's not somebody I'd want to know necessarily, but he was right. He had, you know, Da Vinci, if he'd come out, Titian, if he'd come out, Van Eyck, there are so many of them. Um, they were geniuses. So would they have healthy narcissism if they felt they were a bit special because they'd done something unique? Would Einstein be allowed? Was he a grandiose narcissist? Um, so if we dig into it, there's this thing, and I have I think we've talked about this before, but I, I noticed this number kept occurring. Um, it first occurs in Schopenhauer in the mid-19th century, and he basically says 60% of human beings are not human. Something like that, that... that they're peasants, you know, they're not worth thinking about. He he was a brutal man. but um,
2: Damn, that's a harsh way of putting that.
1: Yeah, so something, you know, in in that sort of way. Then you get to Eric Fromm, who in 1941 escaped from freedom, when he's talking about Nazism and how it developed and how he had to escape from it, being a Jewish Freudian communist, you know, had nothing going for him. Um, And he says that he believes that about 60% of people, there's this number again, do not develop a self. They have a pseudo self. And so they just follow. They they try and keep up with the Joneses. They try and do what you're meant to do. They try and have a, as good or better car as the people next door and wear the right clothes and do all of that. So that was an interesting thought to me because as he came up with the term malignant narcissist, I think what he's telling us is that 60% of the population are benign narcissists. And his idea that that they don't feel confident in themselves, you know, they haven't matured, they haven't become a self. I'm not sure, you know, personally, I'd say it was somewhere after the age of 60 that I started to do that, you know, but it always feels like it was just last week, you know. Uh, Oh, yeah, I was stupid until last week, but now I'm clever as clever, you know, Uh, and then I'm not. Um, then, of course, we come to Milgram and the 63 experiments at Yale. 62.5% of people are willing to go all the way to shock somebody totally.
0: Mm-hmm. Because, and, then we-
2: and let's be clear, because they're in a situation, going back to Zimbardo for a second, where they are an authority figure that they have recognized and agree as an authority figure, is literally ordering them to do it. And they feel powerless to push back for whatever reason. Yeah, they you see,
1: Mil- Milgram didn't. He, he did, did I believe, 17 sets of experiments mm-hmm. and he,
2: moved, he did all over the world many times in many different contexts, and he
1: dropped the authority aspects of it piece by piece. So it was no longer associated with Yale University. It was mm-hmm. just something out there. The white coats went away. He put the actor who was screaming into the room with the person,
2: mm-hmm. and and these changed the percentages.
1: Yeah, the percentages went down a little bit, but bearing um, in mind that he,
2: I understood it from my readings that it went, that it was a significant change.
1: I've got his book here somewhere. Um, okay. I, like, I
2: cannot argue any of the figures. I did not memorize them in reading. No, these. of
1: course not. It, it, but, they went. They did go down. How significant? Yeah we might believe they are a hundred percent of people were willing to shock somebody that was the starting (laughs) point that was the starting point the psychiatrist (laughs) he'd asked about it
2: i was just fascinated by it because i remember noting at the time and sort of bookmarking in my mind that as you remove the trappings of authority the compliance rate went noticeably down it wasn't a half a percentage point or something it was
1: Oh, they, yeah, they, it's more than, yeah, several percentage points. But, yeah, yeah this is the book, Obedience to Authority. Um, but it's a long time since I read it. It's uh, 2008 I read it. So, you know,
2: regardless, uh, the point being that, you know, it, it's not an aberration of human thinking that we obey authority figures. It's built into us to do it. So it's not, it, it's not a deviation from a norm to follow orders. And if you have the trappings of authority built into a situation, the compliance rate goes up because of the factor, because of that basic factor we have, right? We are a leader follower species, as far as I can tell. You know, we line up. We do. It's, it's, we don't have to think about it. We do it. And that's, and there are leaders and there are followers. And that, that is, it. that's, when I say we don't have to think about it, I mean, that's what I mean when I say, you know, that this is instinctive kind of behavior, but you can mess with it. Oh, and yeah. It, and you can mess with it significantly, right, with these various trappings and situations. And that's what all these social experiments are all about. But they need to be understood against a base of, of understanding that we are a leader follower species. That's, that's, that's built into us to have, uh, you know, uh, that hierarchy of authority. And it, I don't think that socialization that creates that. I think it's I think it's instinctive. That's my opinion, but you know, I'll, well, I'll put that there as a as a baseline, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I found the the relevant thing, and you're absolutely right. The first experiment, in fact, he says um, percentage of obedient subjects sixty five percent, and by the fourth experiment. It's down to 30%. There you go. Now, you go. that, of course, argues against the idea that it's instinctive and inbuilt.
2: Oh, no, 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 no. Um, that, that, because the recognition of the authority comes down.
1: Well, he it says is- that the change in the experiments is the proximity of the person screaming. Yep. How oh, okay. close they are physically. So the authority relationship hasn't changed. But rather than being behind glass, the person's next to them.
2: That's the other factor is that's the thing that pushes back against this hierarchy is our is our empathy factor.
0: Yeah.
2: And so so I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's the Mm -hmm. other part of it is is the um, is we do have this follow the leader mentality that we will fall into Uh, Again, Zimbardo also gets into this uh, pretty heavily. Yeah. But, um, but that, is, that is weighted by, that is, that is um, med- mediated by, right, or, or modified by that empathy factor, hmm. that compassion factor, right, is that, is that you don't want to do harm when the consequences of your actions are right in front of your face and you cannot deny them. It is way easier for us to engage in. The uh what what did Hannah Arendt say, right? The uh the not the indifference of evil, but the banality of of
0: evil.
2: Yeah, is is the distance. Mm. When it's when it's farther away from you, when it's just pushing a button, when it's a drone versus, you know, you have to point the gun at a guy and shoot him.
0: Mm.
2: You know, and we saw this with police forces in Nazi Germany, ordinary men, uh the book, right? Christopher Browning's book on uh, on the police forces and World War II, who were made to go kill pregnant women and such. And, and, you know, compliance was kind of high, a lot of trappings of authority, but there were people who went, like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that No fucking way. And there's no amount of, of orders you can give me that are going to change my mind on that. You know,
1: but there's a story in um, Brian Dyson, Victoria's Zen at War, which is, I think, a must read a remarkable book because it's a Zen priest dissing Zen. And one of the stories he gets is because the Japanese military were all trained in mindfulness, as it's now called, and um, um, John Kabat-Zinn tells us that all you need to do is practice mindfulness and you'll become compassionate. Well, the whole Japanese military and the whole industrial force were trained in mindfulness. It's called Zazen in, in Japan, but it's the same thing. And the same technique, exactly, the breathing technique, the way you sit, all of it. And One of the exercises that Japanese troops were exposed to was that um, Chinese civilians would be tied to trees and the young soldiers would be told to charge them and bayonet them to death. And there's a story of of one man who refused. Mm -hmm. And he was really surprised that he wasn't disciplined.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he said there was one other man in their company who wouldn't do it. But the thought was that the other ninety or so people were willing to murder
2: that's what Christopher Browning wrote about. yeah, is that there were these exceptions, but by far, ordinary people, mm. policemen mm. from districts in Germany where their job was to be a policeman, were brought into the into a shipped over to poland and um and Germany mm. uh, and were made to do the executions, yeah. mass executions, mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the tragic reality is most of them went along with it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and, and so those exceptions do exist, but the rule seems to be follow the leader, you know, uh, and yeah. there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not because we're evil little gremlins deep, deep, deep inside. It, it's a lot more multi-layered than that, but it seems to be the truth that that is where we go.
1: Yeah, I, it may be a truth. I, I, you know, when I left Scientology, I I wasn't going to go and look at psychology because psychology is evil, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I actually looked at zoology, <laughs> and I read Eugene Morice's incredible books uh, about the. The Soul of the Ape and the Soul of the White Ant, mm. which are the first books of um, evidence based zoology back at the beginning of the 20th century. He studied a troop of baboons for two years, and they were very friendly because the boars had all had their guns taken away so the, the young baboons had never been shot at. So they were willing to get close to humans so he could study them. He studied termites, which are not in fact ants, but um, calls them white ants. And he he came to some amazing conclusions. And in looking at those conclusions where he was talking about something as simple as an ant and something as complex as a, as a, as a baboon, um, that there were aspects of behavior that, that you could look at in terms of human beings. I I read a fair amount about chimpanzees, about bonobos, sort of thinking about our behavior in those terms. Mm -hmm. And it's maybe the idea of leader follower, We are social animals. So unlike, uh, say, the the tiger, where the male is so antisocial, it'll eat its own young. You know, they get hungry, you know, need a snack. Um, We are we don't have that going on in us, but we have a range of behavior, which probably covers the entire animal kingdom from the amoeba on up. We are capable of behaving in just about any way. I think some people, I started thinking about the idea of the rogue. Um, you get, get it among elephants, that, that, that other elephants won't have anything to do with them. Um, and that, that seemed to me that that was maybe the psychopath, that, that maybe that 2% of human beings are meant to be psychopaths, 3% of men, 1% of women. Uh, women score higher on the borderline, though, if they thought they were going to get away with anything there. Um, that, that this small proportion were rogues. They didn't have a social conscience. They didn't have this positive pro-social way of being. Right.
2: And that's where I think they, the possibility, or at least the theory of a genetic mutation or some kind of you know, nature-style thing going on there has some legs. Yeah. You know, you yeah. kind of... And work. What's up with that, right? Especially also given that it's a significantly smaller percentage. We're not talking about... 20 percent of the population we're talking about you know maybe maybe two percent you know i mean i i those are to me that's encouraging but it also the way i think about things is um is a push in the direction of perhaps this is i don't want to call it mutant behavior but certainly genetically abnormal behavior Hmm. right because by far I mean, any of us know, anybody who's gone to kindergarten knows that socialization is definitely where we're at. And we line up into hierarchies right away based on all kinds of values. Um, you know, it tends to be uh, might is right at our younger ages. Right. Which is why we have bullies. I mean, that's it, it's just a developmental process. We're, we're never going to not have bullies. But there is a point where bullies, you know, where the rational mind can take over, and we certainly need to continue encouraging that behavior. But then the values of of what determines the hierarchy change as we become more complicated in our thinking, you know, fashion, economics, geographical location, right, where where you live, where you come from, uh, what language you speak. These are the things that we start lining up on. But we're always lining up on something,
1: well, let, let me throw in a, a spanner into these works. Yeah, um, I, I, for periods of time, home educated all four of my children and, and I became very interested in home education, what school was for and what was going on. And one of the little tidbits that, that came out of studying home education was that home educated children do not necessarily fall into hierarchical position when they go, if they go to university or they join another group. So I do think that that school ha- is a lot to blame for you know labeling kids as being something and putting them into a hierarchy. And at the same time I'll let-
2: argue the purpose of school is to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's to, so- to create obedience, to to create an authoritarian structure, which is the most utterly unnecessary and stupid thing to do, because vain as Rembrandt and da Vinci may have been, we want people like that, please. We don't want standardized, uniform people. We want people who can creatively give something to society rather than have to put their hand up when they want to go to the toilet, you know? Very Um,
2: much so. It begs the question, though, given what we were also talking about, whether everybody is actually on a level playing field to be able to achieve that potential.
1: No, I mean, we want something that oh. will allow people to achieve their potential. I mean, in this yeah. school, in this this country, in the last 10 or 15 years, the thought has been to close all the special schools for right. people who have learning difficulties, disabilities, and put those kids into the ordinary classroom and put a, a learning assistant with them. And, you know, I, I I had a very interesting school experience. I went to a top school which was the top school in the county, where they, they accepted oiks like me. And, you know, some of the kids were actually, money was being paid for them to go to this school. It had, It's the same school that Samuel Johnson went to, Dr Samuel Johnson. And I had the same teachers. And I was very pleased to find out that he dropped out of the school too, and that his doctorate only came when he refused to publish his dictionary unless he was given a doctorate. So bless the man. But... <laughs> Um, And the school had already existed for a couple of hundred years when he went to it and probably had the same teachers then as well. So this is a very highly regarded school. It would send three or four people to Oxbridge every year. And I went from that into the... Because I walked out at 14, the the headmaster was rude about my mum because of an excuse note she'd written, which was entirely true. I had spent the afternoon at home because her lunch guest had been late and he called her a liar and a cheat. And at age 14, and more frightened of this man than anybody, he was enormous and he had flogged me with a cane. But I just looked at him and said, until you withdraw that comment, I'm not coming back to school. And nobody knew what to do. So I got 11 weeks holiday. I went and saw Jimi Hendrix and The Who. It was brilliant. Um, Santana, you know, Chicago, Moody Blues, you name it, Pink Floyd. Um, The Doors, I even saw The Doors. And then I went back to school at 15, In the the lowest of the schools in the area, which was much bigger. And there, to my interest, you were really streamed according to every subject. So you have five different streams according to your ability, and you go into a stream with kids who are of a similar ability. And I'd never thought about that. We were just streamed into you know the clever kids and the kids like me. And um they weren't so clever, or science or, or modern, where you did languages. But here, it was like, if you were good at maths, you're in the top stream. If you're having a hard time, you're in the bottom stream, and you could get the help you needed, which I think is probably a good thing. But I do worry about institutionalisation. I worry about, you know, I think we should have smaller schools, smaller hospitals, more, you know, not these great cities of hospitals that we now have which spread germs crazily all around. Uh, I have a house guest who who, uh, studied medicine, and and she was saying the curtains that they have around the beds, they're filthy. You know, they've finally brought in a system where they're dated, and they will actually wash them and stuff like that. But, you know, the the, the consultant's ties, absolutely bug-ridden, you know. So you've got Mercer and all of these dreadful things happening.
2: Interesting, interesting I, I will say I'll just pipe in real fast to say yeah. I agree with you. I do believe that we have. I see. I, I it tends to be an either or argument, and I don't think it should be right. I think that we have. Uh, I think we have this hierarchical structural instinct, right? Because we just we just do, but then we also reinforce that in the school system because they are about making compliance robots rather than about education, right? In the same way that prisons are more about eye-for-an-eye punishment, kind of biblical judgment, more so than they are about rehabilitation. Certainly, I can say that in the United States, right? There are other places in the world that are getting this better. Um, But they're only getting it it better as a result of a lot of research and a lot of work by very smart people who are literally trying to reframe the entire argument of what are we doing with our criminal element. And, And the United States hasn't really barely caught up with that or those arguments at all. So, right. so you have institutional level problems and you have institutional level purposing that is not necessarily what we all like to think it is. And that's its own level of problem. But I think that um, these institutions are not the things that create hierarchical problems or social issues. That's us, we're doing that. Hmm. And, 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 and again, even in a prison system, you have an enforced structure, but even then, look what happens. Groupings, factions, and hierarchies. They just naturally form, yeah. right? And that's, and that's my argument, really, is that we're going to do that whether we're told to do that or not, right? In any group situation, that's going to happen. But it doesn't. That's not the good and bad thing. It's not a value judgment thing. It's just what we do. It's kind of like anywhere you go, if you want to stay alive, you're going to have to eat. It's not a good or bad thing. It's just the fact. You know, you can oh, eat is a good thing, definitely. <laughs> right? <laughs> I uh, love so, it. <laughs> and, and you know, so that's kind of my point on that. Is is that it, is it's not an either or proposition. School can. Deal with that issue in a constructive manner, or it can use it to enforce the compliance model and, and that 's what we have seen in the british system that 's what is carried over to the American system and that I think we could do a lot more with to improve that situation
0: it's interesting
1: uh,
2: in that lots of ways you know.
1: that there was a point in history where this problem was being looked at. Um, I was going to, I found this interesting quotation from Nietzsche of all people. He's talking about something called resentiment, resentiment, which is resentment, but he's got two S's in it. And Nietzsche says, this plant thrives best among anarchists and anti Semites today. This is Nietzsche criticizing anti Semitism so much for what his sister did in rewriting his work and giving it to hitler
0: mm. but
1: so it flowers as it like it has always done in secret like a violet but with a different scent and just as like always gives rise to like it will come as no surprise to find attempts coming once more from these circles as so often before to sanctify revenge with the term justice there you go as though justice were fundamentally simply a further development of the feeling of having been wronged and belatedly to legitimise with revenge emotional reactions in general, one and all. So, yeah, punishment, which were derived from the word pain, to inflict pain, rather than rehabilitation. In the early 1970s, there was a reform school in England called Pepper Harrow, uh, single P, P-E-P-E-R. And a documentary was made, about it at the time. And then about 20 years later, they came back, and four of the boys who had been in the documentary were interviewed in later life. And it is jaw dropping. They had a 10% recidivism rate at Pepper Harrow. Only 10% of the kids who went I through were offended. 10%? Not just had, not
2: just. It wouldn't be 10% of that four. It was just 10% of the 10% total.
1: Of, of kids going through the school.
2: And, uh, and this was a school for, for already troubled teens, already this troubled This was teens.
1: a school for children who had broken the law. Right, okay. And, and so this was,
2: a, this was like a juvenile hall situation.
1: Yeah, very much so. Wow,
2: now, 10% is, is impressive. What did they do?
1: It's mind-boggling. In the yeah. 1980s, uh, Margaret Thatcher, through William Whitelaw, introduced a programme that was called The Short Sharp Shock, which is a quotation from the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan, and means decapitation in the original version. But he thought it was funny that they would kind of boot camp kids. So they started this hard thing and they put it through all the reform schools. Their recidivism rate went up to 80%, Mm -hmm. which is about where it stands, I think, in the UK and America. So Uh,
2: do I... That right to interpret that as the more brutal they became with the kids the more the kids would re would reengage engage in criminality yes right. and, and of course pris- cool. yeah. prisons then
1: become schools for scoundrels to to right. learn all the tricks of the trade that's right one of the kids who'd gone to pepper Haro really stuck in my mind he was 14 when he was there i was kind of shocked watching the documentary because they're all these hippies, basically, who are the teachers and the jailers, whatever they're meant to be. One of the things that really shocked me was there was an eight year old kid walking around smoking a cigarette. Nobody stopped him. Now, for me, that's going a bit overboard with your liberal ideas, you know. Um, A little too
2: progressive, I think.
1: (laughs) But look at the consequences. The 14 year old boy was the oldest of four children. All of his siblings were by different fathers. His mother had not managed to create a partnership, and she wasn't good at looking after the kids. So he'd started stealing food, and that's what he'd been caught doing.
0: Mm.
1: And he could not read and write. Mm. 14, and he can't read and write, and he's in this place. 20 years later, he has a PhD, and he's the head of child services for a whole county. Because what he saw there determined him.
2: What in a so nutshell? I'm just because I'm curious. What what did they do? I mean, it wasn't just pure. Let them do whatever they want. Clearly,
1: it was they were constantly engaged in a social dialogue. That that they had a they didn't have a large number of kids there, so they were talking with them all the time. They were finding out what their problems were, what they felt about the world, what they thought about the world, and allowing them to express that. Um, I keep getting the name wrong, but I think it's Mendota. Spike will correct me um, that they this is a juvenile facility in the US where they actually ran a proper study with a control group and they pretty much were loving and friendly and and brought counselors in for for one group and left the others do what they they did. Um, There was something, I I don't remember the numbers, but it was something like in the next two years, there were 16 murders committed by the control group and none.
2: Right. I think I read about that one.
1: Yeah. Well, if if you've read Opening Our Minds, I do actually mention it in there. Oh,
2: that must have been where I read about it then. Yeah, because I did read that. So Yep, that's that. That makes sense, cause that and and see, and it only makes sense. I, you know, I hate to to bring this in right now. I mean, I didn't know if I was gonna where this would go, but I I'll bring it up just because I'm always, you know, I'm I'm always thinking, I'm always looking at life lessons, and so we've got this new dog in our life, uh, Benson, right? This Benson, not named after the dog in Time Bandits, as no, we. not after Time Bandits, no. But he is an adorable little He is- yeah. Right. And, and here's the thing, all my life, I've never had a pet that I would really call my own growing yeah. up we had dogs. They weren't mine. Mm. I had to feed the dog, but it wasn't my dog. Mm. I didn't have a lassie situation growing up. I was kind of arm's distance from our, from our pets. Um, you know, my, the, I, I think I had a Guinea pig or something point being, and I've never raised kids, mm. I haven't been, but I wasn't there to raise him. So this is the closest I've ever had. And I you know, and I know parents like kind of lose their mind when people compare pets to with kids, because I know it's not the same thing. However, there are lessons mm. and and there are lessons in patience. Mm. and there are lessons in behavior and behavior modification
0: mm. with
2: animals and with kids. yep and and, I, and and you can learn those lessons and you can succeed with them, or you can continue to be frustrated and you can miss you can mistreat and abuse the pets or kids. Make and, it worse. And you will make it worse. Right. And one of those lessons is, and it's counterintuitive as hell, it, it, it runs against every bone in your body, especially at 3 a.m. when you've been woken up, right, by the screaming kid or the barking dog. Right. And this is a rescue dog we've gotten. This is a mm-hmm. three year old rescue. This dog has been in an abusive situation. That's, and we brought him into our home. And you recognize there's a responsibility there. You're the guy who brought him into the home. You're the one who had the kid. You asked for it. You you, you had every opportunity to not have this, and now you got it. So you got to deal with it and be responsible for it. And, and there have been, like, you know, the first night we had him was a sleepless night. You know, until we learned the language of my dog, right, my wife and I, we were at odds and we were very confused and we would lose our patience and be very upset. But, but, you know, you learn and we kept reading and reading and reading like, okay, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? Right. Because I don't want to make this worse. And the, and the, and the simple piece of information that I kept forefront the, the entire time was this dog, there is no such thing as a dog that is going to try to get revenge on you or be spiteful to you. The dog is trying to do what he thinks you want him to do or what he can't help but doing because of his biology.
0: Yeah.
2: And I believe it's the exact same way with children. And that you we assume the counterintuitiveness here is at 3 in the morning when you're being woken up, you take it personally. This dog is trying to make uh, disturb my sleep, trying to make me upset, trying to piss me off. And you this have to This dog realize-
1: is a narcissist.
2: Exactly. This dog's a goddamn narcissist, right? Fuck this dog. And what you actually learn though, right, by keeping these kind of simple ideas at the forefront is that no, the dog is not being spiteful, not being vengeful, and is, and is literally just trying to do what he thinks you want him to do. And you have to not give him opportunities to mess up. If you don't want him going in the bathroom, close the damn door. that's That's how you deal with it. You're the responsible person, right? and and i and I only I, I guess I'm bringing this up because it's 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 that counterintuitive thing. we We immediately go to the wrong answer, actually. And once I started realizing that the dog came to us as a rescue with, you know, with some attachment issues, with some like, with some, um, you know, he doesn't want to be left alone. And we were leaving him alone in the living room at night, right? Because we thought that's what he needed. And we were just wrong, right? And so we learned, oh, he's barking because he wants to be around us, not because he's trying to wake us up and make our life miserable. And, again, it's counterintuitive, but once you acknowledge it and realize that you need to deal with this being, this little living organism with tolerance, compassion, understanding, and learn its language, and I don't think a baby's any different, then you actually approach it from a completely different perspective. And now there's no more barking, now there's no more problems because we're talking to each other and we understand one another. And the needs right and it took a couple of weeks to get there and it was and there were some some real you know trials of patience in doing that but but keeping that at the forefront was really really important and it was a real life lesson for me mm-hmm. um that i bring to this discussion here with the prisons and the reform schools and the various things is it might not seem to the person who's always taking everything so goddamn personally <laughs> that these solutions even exist. The kids just need to be beaten into compliance, you know, animals just need to be beaten into, you know, doing what you want them to do. Well, the results you get from that are uniform, but they are uniformly awful yeah. for the well-being of the, cri- of the kid or the animal, right? You can beat them into submission. Turns out you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, but they resist you and fight you every step of the way, and they hate you for every single time you do it to them because you're not understanding them.
1: Hmm. Yeah, you're not actually in communication with them. When when my all four of my children uh, as babies stayed in bed with me and their mum till they were six months old, Um, which I think is a really sensible thing to do, unless you're an alcoholic, in which case you might crush them. Um, but they can feed from the breast without you having to get up or, or, you know. But one morning, he was probably about four or five months old. My, my oldest boy, Ben, um, I was woken up. And what he managed to do is to get his head in his mother's neck, which gave him the purchase so he could kick me in the throat. <laughs> and it was one of those moments you are woken up painfully. And then you get that that there is no intention. There is no motivation. He had a little smile. You know, he was smiling. He thought he was having a good time. And it's true. I agree with you. It's true also of pets that I I hadn't had a pet of my own um, until, what, about eight, nine years ago, nine years ago. And um, a feral cat, uh, I had a guy doing some work on the house and he started feeding this cat. So the cat started coming around and I'd be in the garden and I'd put my hand out to stroke it and it would scratch me. And this went on for a few weeks and then gradually we got to know each other. And I became completely fascinated. You know, the, it sadly developed a tumor in its throat. She developed a tumor in her throat and that was the end of that. Yeah. But along the way, we, from her biting and scratching me, which was a fundamental part of her behaviour, to take this wild or semi wild animal and come into relationship with it—that a relationship that's not based upon language, but that's based upon her understanding my intentions and me understanding her intentions. So, at the last I don't know, seven or eight months of her life, yeah, from about the July to to February, she was. Perfectly placid with me. We had learned how to associate with each other. And, and it is a problem that, that people who you know, hold on to some kind of puritanical view that human beings are evil unless they're constrained, will commit horror in the world. Yes. And we are one of the first generations to even think that way. You know, right. Spare the rod and spoil the child. As I say, when I went to school, it was still permissible for the teachers to hit us, you know. So how on earth is that going to help, you know? But there are people who believe it does. So that's
0: anyway. exactly.
2: But it. I really wanted to highlight that counterintuitiveness of it because, because oh. it's it. You know, we we have a thought and then think, well, we had it, so it must be right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, man, that's not true. You know, it's just, and and there's also, of course, unfortunately, the generational aspect of it of, well, I was beaten as a kid and I turned out okay. And you're kind of like,
0: mm, okay. I think we
2: I want to have a higher standard here, you know, <laughs> like it's okay for us to maybe not repeat all the mistakes that were, you know, foisted off on us and call it good parenting, you know? And I guess in a way this relates back, uh, or I will relate it back to, you know, this narcissism point that we're, that we're, um, started talking about all this on, uh, before we started solving all the problems of the world. <laughs> Uh, as as we do, um, because if anything, when I put this into a narcissistic frame of mind, I start thinking about a person who would look at the things we're talking about or look at the situations uh, it be in the situations we're talking about, and it wouldn't even occur to them that the that the dog or the creed or the baby or whatever that other people in their vicinity it, it, the way I see it or think about it is that is that this is a person who the last thing that they're ever going to think about or take into consideration is the thoughts and feelings of other things around them.
1: Yeah, they're solipsistic. That you know they might extend to their own family, they might extend into some of their friends, and I think sometimes you get characters who are narcissistic about their nation, you know, that imagined community or uh, well, their that... religious. Uh, cohort, you know, whatever they believe in, that they'll extend their good feeling to there, but they will be utterly destructive towards others. Um, I keep talking about The Dawn of Everything um, by um, Wengro and and Graeber, uh, because it really blew my mind. It was just an incredible read. But one of the things they point to is that the origins of the Enlightenment in Europe may well have been an Algonquian uh, native an indigenous Algonquian uh, called Condéronc. And it would appear that Rousseau kick-started the Enlightenment by taking ideas from this man. And he is referenced there's, there's no but they had a particular problem with Europeans when they went over there. So we're talking about the early 18th century and the mm. Algonquian people have not been defeated. They would I found out today they were defeated in St. Philip's War in uh, seventeen sixty five and sixty six uh, which was by per capita the most destructive war that white people have fought because ten wow. percent of the population of New England died during this this one year period, but mm-hmm. they flattened the Algonquian people you know, mohicans all of that that lot um but Condironk pointed out that, that what worried them about the Europeans was that they hated each other. That they acted so badly towards each other. In their community, you were friendly towards all other Algonquian people. Now, you could be viciously nasty to anybody else, mm-hmm. but they didn't understand the social dynamic of, of Europeans. And we see all of these tribal groupings now, you know, the, the idea of the Aryan nations that Hitler would have accepted People who are descended from Hungarians, Russians, Poles as being Aryan, you know. I mean, no, just having pale skin, I'm afraid, doesn't doesn't help you with that. But mm-hmm. they get into this this sense of belonging, and I think your leader follower thing. Part of that is there are some of us who are determined to think for ourselves. I and agree. Are very small in number.
2: Yes. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I, I think that it's. It, I, I tend to think of it more as the, on the on that seat um, triad. But I, but I do believe that there is this 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 empath side of the spectrum, which is sort of its own kind of mutation, if you will. <laughs> it's its own sort because it's a minority thing, as I as I understand it. to true empaths, so you and well, me,
1: percent again like sociopaths, psychopaths, yeah. Yeah.
2: And you have an opposite for every, you know, action, there's the opposite reaction, right? So you're going to have this and it may, and, and even, i I've, I know this is all invented. I, this is just, these are just ideas I have, but I, I, I even kind of justify it to myself evolutionarily mm-hmm. from an evolutionary biology point of view, you know, if in a species that is at the top of the food chain and is commanding the world and, you know, we kind of are, mm-hmm. um, it would make sense to me, and it would make sense in other in other species as well. I don't think that this is uniquely a human thing, but I believe the level of complexity of human thought makes this a more complicated issue at the human level than, say, at the whale level or at the baboon level. Um, but I still believe you're going to see shades of this at at any biological level is... You have to have a certain part of the species that takes out other parts of the same species that preys on itself, because it, you know how do you keep the population down in, a, in a, when you're at the top of the food chain, right? But you also, but whether that's a, whether that's the purpose or not of serial killers, you know, from an evolutionary biology point of view, I do see opposite sides of the coin. I see us as the opposite sides of the coin to that Ted Bundy you know, L. Ron Hubbard type, type personality or function. And, um, and I, I, you know, and you kind of think that, that maybe we're as small a percent as they are a smaller person. I don't, that's where I start losing the plot is I don't know what the percentages oh. break down on on this, you know,
1: I think, you know, realistically, my life's work from my teens has, has been to determine if it is rational, to be nice to people. right? And I have come to the absolute conclusion that being nasty to people isn't going to work.
0: Mm. It's going
1: to give us war, famine, disease, and death. It's it's not going to create a a good human society. I think if we do manage to survive uh, suicidal, massively suicidal tendencies as, as a species, that we may grow up. And mm-hmm. that grown-up humans could be really a quite marvelous thing. We are a long way away from that now. In,
0: exactly. In
1: understanding, but yeah. you know, still, it, 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 and part of the reason that it's be, is so difficult is because predatory people, whatever we call them, rise to the top. That's right. You know, trying That's to right. think of politicians who've been decent. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. <laughs> There are very few, who, when we poke into their private lives and look at the way they behave towards people, you know, there are awful lot of philanderers, you know, uh, sexual predators who become serious. You know, Clinton is a fairly obvious example. FDR, uh, JFK, all Democrats as well noticed that. You know, nobody well, would sleep I mean, with Nixon. I
2: mean, let's face it. I they throw Trump out there. I mean, talk about a sexual yeah, predator. Yeah, that's
1: true. Yeah, he just grabs them by the pussy. I'd forgotten about him. Yeah. Well, we had the same with Lloyd George, one of our greatest prime ministers, who had his mistress.
2: That's right. I, even even uh, Bush uh, was a philanderer and uh, and sort of serial sexual escapades kind of guy, as I understand yeah. it. Back when he was sowing his wild oats before you know politics mm-hmm. became his thing. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of layers to that, of course, too, right? Um, but uh, but but it is interesting, and I think absolutely accurate that the top tier of society, in terms of leadership level, is, is dominated by these so-called narcissist, sociopathic personalities, whatever, you know, predatory personalities, because, because to seek out power requires a mindset of being willing to and able to do bad things to people because the societies that we have erected, that we structure, sort of are built around that. And um, it's just kind of the way our businesses are put together, right? It's, it's, it is money,
1: make more money. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I mean, we really structure ourselves in kind of awful ways. Um, And we have um, developed systems that limit those um, atrocities or limit those, those proclivities Um, And we have pretty decent systems that accomplish that when you really think about the scope and magnitude of the problem, Mm. Um, you know, and and the idea that, you know, these systems, because they have flaws and errors and issues with them. Well, let's tear them all down and hit the reset button. Hey, we already know what happens every single time we do that in history. We do not need to do that.
0: Mm.
2: Right. Because the the reign of terror. Yes, it always happens. Mm. Right. Um, the thing that keeps the checks and balances in place and keeps the sociopaths in place is our systems, not lack of our systems or having to reset the system. It's building and reinforcing the system. And, I, I, you know, it's just the short-sightedness of us that we miss that bigger picture, I think. And this kind of, in a way, our own short-sighted nature sort of is its own mechanism for perpetuating the you know the narcissist
1: yeah short termism
2: yeah we keep putting them there and we keep not learning the lesson from the last guy mm. you know and it's not the system that's at fault it's us <laughs> and we can do something about that you know but we need to do we really do need to raise awareness and, and understanding about this and realize that you know um, we can actually we can do better.
1: As you say, and and, and it is happening that that looking at the corporate world in the last 20 or 30 years, tremendous changes have happened in in some of the larger corporations in many businesses, either because they want to be perceived as being good, because that's good for PR, and I don't mind that I started working with that thought in the 80s, that if you're going to get politicians to do something good, the incentive is you know, they change society. We have this bizarre situation. I think Tony Blair is one of the worst human beings who ever lived. I think he's, you know, we call him Tony B. Liar. Um, he made $25 million in the year after he resigned as prime minister. And he's a socialist. You know, he what? You know, uh, he didn't give any of it away. And you've got this bizarre thing that he is one of the causal factors of the Iraq war, where three quarters of a million people died. Yep. Also the goodwill ambassador to the Middle East, which shows how sensible British politics is at heart.
2: But- and I can only agree with you because it's not like our side of the pond is getting it a whole lot better in so many ways.
1: Well, what did happen that was good under Blair and Brown was that they brought in all sorts of environmental rulings so that we actually pushed ahead of the Germans in terms of our eco-friendliness. Now, you know, that's been f- the, the, the Tory administration since um, Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson have really not picked up the ball and done the right things. But mm. I do sense that, that there is a growing will in the world and that, that you know, we have to have hope. We, we have to see that by... Doing things better and taking responsibility by growing up, by being mature, by not being pseudo selves, by being ourselves, by accepting our own tastes and preferences, accepting our own decisions, even as Joseph Campbell says, rejoicing in our vices, uh, as long as they're not damaging to other human beings, you know. Right. That's um, right.
2: And and not stigmatizing people because of these kind of disagreements or problems. We make issues out of non-issues 24 seven. Yeah. Right. right? We do that. We all, we all contribute to this nonsense.
1: Yeah. One of the most amazing things I've seen in the last year was, was a little bit of film of, yeah, I can't remember. It was maybe black lives matter or Antifa on one side and you know, the um, KKK or who, you know, So there are a line of people and they've got megaphones and they're like a few feet away from each other and they're yelling at each other, obscenities. And I'm kind of going, this fervor is not helpful. Mm -hmm. We've got to come to dialogue. We've got to come to shared ground somehow, you know, and whatever the contrails are doing and, and whether vaccinations are actually will mean that I'll, I'll die two years ago, uh, when I had it. Uh, 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 you know, we've, and we have to bring evidence and rationality and at some point, yeah. That'd probably be useful. Right. We've probably worn down our audience now to.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from yeah.
2: Well, I think, you know, obviously, you know, with the way we go, this is, and these are how we talk, by the way, guys, this is a
1: we a having conversation. Yeah,
2: yeah, this is just us chatting. I you know I always enjoyed having these conversations because they are always so far reaching and because I get to bring in uh and I, this is what I love about talking with you is is I really get to bring in the full breadth of like all the things that are on my mind and that are recent and in the past it, so. you know and and we get to actually dialogue on this stuff and And isn't it interesting how when we, you know, that we do have this meeting of the minds on so many issues and things that we agree on, even though there are truly so many things you and I disagree on, too. Yeah. (laughs) But we really meet on all these important things, and we can see that, um, that the things that we don't agree on are really not as important. We don't harp on those. Because these are basic fundamental things that we think will really make a difference in society, and I agree with you that that the biggest um thing at the bottom of all of this is the is the hope factor you know is the fact that we that we can move this ball down the road and we can make things better um you know just by talking about them and 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 maybe pointing things out to folks and and maybe they'll think about them and, and they'll talk to some people about it. And that, that's the only way that change happens.
0: Mm.
2: You know, it really, it really doesn't, it's so rarely, if you really think about your life, how many changes in society or culture have come from the top down? Mm. You know, because the president ordered it. Mm. Uh, really? You know, when was the last time the prime minister really made a difference in your personal life, right? Because of some commandment or order. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than the masks thing, I, I, I'll give everybody that. But that was in response to a, glo- a literally global pandemic. There's not one I mean, It
1: took to them a, a year at the World Health Organization to admit that it was transmitted aerially. And so all of this stuff about us washing our hands every 10 minutes. Exactly, exactly. You know, and You know, my, my dentist locally, the, he just put in, units that would filter the air cost him a fortune but he'd worked out that's what he needed to do and um that that you know that our schools our public buildings need to have better airflow there's a, and for all of the viruses and bacterial infections that are floating around out there yeah we can I, i've sort of think i'm just going to put this one last thought in because it's something that's that's very much been on my mind for the last month or so i i got this idea you know we'll call. We'll talk about human predators. Let's not bother with all of the minor versions of them. If somebody is predatory, we need to be aware of that. And we need to isolate them so they can't hurt us. And if we can, we need to rehabilitate them. And if we can't rehabilitate them, we need to lock them up. Um, And that's that. Maybe we need to sometimes lock them up while we're rehabilitating them. Mm -hmm. But I've seen that there's another way of looking at this problem. And this has come from um, reading about the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. um and looking at film of, of what's happening and some of the statements that are being made some of the hateful statements that are being made and i no longer care which side i i tend to say to people i'm not on any side i don't take a side i you know there are i want to resolve and bring people together if i possibly can and I'm starting to wonder if we shouldn't use the term hate monger for people who infiltrate perfectly good, decent movements that, that are meaningful. If you look at Christianity, it, it started out with such hope, with such meaning, and it's been used to perform genocide. Yes, um, it, it's been used to burn witches, which is largely just old ladies who who don't look the way they're meant to look. You know, it, it's been used For concentration camps. It's been used. And this is this is hatred and the fervor of hatred. And I think we be good to recognize that that these people we're calling narcissists, they're only dangerous if they are spreading hate, if they are spreading divisiveness and opposition. So on that glad note,
2: (laughs) I I agree completely. I will add to that by saying that I have referred to such people as opportunists. Right? Could they tend to ride the coattails of the narcissist? Right? We see all the enablers
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: of, of Trump, et cetera, the Roger Stones of the world. I'll name some names: Steve right? yeah.
1: Bannon, Steve Alexander Dugin, and I'm very sorry about his daughter. You know, but what an evil human being! You know,
2: exactly. So you have, so we have, really, we have two kinds of people we're talking about here, which is your predators. Right, The guys who are really leading the charge, and you have these enablers, these hate mongers, these people, these agent provocateurs, these uh-huh. people who come in and stir things up because in that stirring is opportunity for uh-huh. them, or at least that's what they think in the moment. Uh-huh. And it's amazing to me, and maybe this is a whole nother podcast, I'm not sure, certainly another topic, but it is endlessly amazing to me that such personalities seem to be utterly incapable of understanding the precariousness of their position. Mm -hmm. They always think they're going to be the exception to the rule that the predator isn't going to prey on them or kick them under the bus the second they are no longer convenient or a useful tool for them. And look where
1: Steve Bannon is now.
2: Right, exactly. Look at where Roger Stone is now. Look at the laundry list of felons. Convicted felons in Trump's orbit. Everybody who ever connects with this guy. Look at the orbit of Elron Hubbard. Look at the orbit of a Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. I mean, a David Koresh. They've, there is nothing but disaster in the wake of a predator. No. They are the great white sharks of the human race. They just roam idly and munch on whatever they want to, mm-hmm. you know. And if those remoras, those those little, you know, those little fish that go on the sharks they get eaten too sometimes in the feeding frenzy, you know, and they never seem to twig on the, on the precariousness of their position. So Mm -hmm. just my last little. So if there
1: are any fish out there watching this, be careful (laughs) sharks. Right.
2: Don't be a fish, man.
1: (laughs) I am a fish. What can I do about it? Where's Nemo? Yeah, exactly. All right, John. Well, I definitely enjoy talking. Thank you. Yeah, for- it's such fun. I think, you know, we always have fun and uh, this may be the most fun we've ever had together. So let's keep on doing it. And thank you so much for, you know, I know you're recuperating and, and here you are <laughs> having this intense conversation. So thank you for engaging and thank oh. thanks to everybody for watching. If you're not actually uh, subscribed, you should do that, but much more interested in your money, really um so uh if you're Support not paying channel. for this then you're a cheapskate what can i say <laughs> no. so the channel yeah get, get onto to patreon you know understand that jack conti gave the world one of the greatest gifts with with his brilliant patreon system and go and watch pomplamoose his band which is why he developed Patreon. brilliant absolutely brilliant so thanks very much chris and uh, we will meet again soon absolutely Hi John here, thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks
0: so much.